it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And thanks to our malt mates at Cry Malt, I'm Matt Kierkegaard, and that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. This week, I can't really tell you what aspect of beer we're talking about, because even though we're nominally speaking to Chris Kelly from East Coast Canning, it's not really about canning at all. It's a genuine, free-ranging conversation. Chris is one of those people who we could get on every week and not run out of content, because his role as founder of East Coast Canning gives him a unique overview of the entire craft brewing industry, and his thoughtful approach and honesty ensure that his insights are well worth capturing. We do hear about how his COVID year went, being the pivot point for many a brewery pivot, but we also look at so much more that is happening in the industry from his unique viewpoint. We last spoke to Chris in early 2018 when we looked into his background as we do with many a beer's conversation and how he came to get started at East Coast. Even if you are a long-time listener, it might be worth going back and revisiting that conversation because I did before I had this chat with Chris and I got so much out of it. The content is evergreen and this chat builds on that in some ways. Anyway, I hope you find this conversation with Chris Kelly as interesting as I did. Chris Kelly, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Uh, Thanks for having me, Matt. Nice to, uh, nice to chat again. Yeah, well, it, I can't believe that three years has uh, passed. In fact, it's almost exactly three years or just a shade over three years since uh, we caught up um, to talk a little bit about East Coast Canning. And I, I said, um, you know, I listened back to that conversation uh, in preparation for this and remembered just why I found it so enjoyable and insightful. So I, I guess starting... Um, you know, we're still in COVID, but coming out of it. And last year, I'd flagged talking to you then because, you know, pivot was the word of the day. And one of the things everyone was pivoting to was packaging. So tell us a little bit about your 2020. Yeah, 2020. Um, we uh, were kind of coming out of summer, obviously, as, as everyone was uh, sort of trying to figure out what last winter was going to hold for the industry because. The, the previous winter was challenging. How so? Uh, it was it was it was slow. The previous winter, the, the winter of twenty nineteen, um, was tough. Um, you know, we we did fine, and, and and look, you know, I think it's good for for the, the industry in general in Australia, and that our tough time is really only three or four months. Um, I think that between Easter and Anzac Day and the public holidays, you get through April. And then moving into festival season, as you know, it's sort of you know often known in May, we kind of get a bit of an elongation of the the summer business, and and I really think that it's sort of June, July, and August are the doldrums. But um, it, it is certainly you know 2019 was tough. It was slow, um, and and it, it basically mirrored what we'd seen previously. It was maybe just a tiny tick worse, and, and we'd sort of been hearing that from. Um, from brewers on the ground. Um, so we'd sort of, I guess, in February and, and early March of 2020, it was sort of, you know, that's where we were shifting our attention to try and figure out what was, you know, going to happen in, in, in winter of 2020. Um, 
I was I was actually in Colorado in sort of mid March visiting suppliers, and I I think I managed to just scrape onto a flight before any type of mandatory um, quarantine was instigated, and kind of just snuck back into the country in time for everything to get shut down and us to really kind of, you know, sit back and have to evaluate what might occur. Um, but, um, yeah, so, you know, that that was an interesting period. Obviously, we didn't really know where we stood for, you know, made it felt like three weeks, but I think it was three days where we didn't really know where we stood as an industry. Mm. Um, you know, when, when it was kind of like, oh, bottle shops, are they essential? You know, like what? If, if bottle shops are essential, then how do we feed the bottle shops? Does that mean beer manufacturing is essential and so on and so forth? And so, it, it, you know, again, it felt like an eternity, but it really was actually probably a pretty quick turnaround um, until we got an understanding of where we stood. I went sort of straight to my team and sort of said, well, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. We'll keep you all employed. We'll do our best, all those sorts of things. And then only a few days later, we kind of went to them and said, okay, team, well, what we're actually going to have to do is really work hard here and see what the industry needs of us. And um, it was pretty cool. It was pretty, like, inspiring time, I suppose, because our entire team kind of went, yeah, okay, let's, you know, let, let's party. Let's see what is needed of us. And, and so I guess that basically drove into a really busy uh, April and May service, sort of lots of new customers and, and just sort of helping people out to get a beer in package. I, I might just break in there um, and, and ask, because when we did speak in 2018, you had three crews on the road, um, and I think you had just made the move to get rid of the gravity fed um, and all counter pressure fillers. So just to describe the size of your business, you know, in, in March last year. Uh, so March of 2020, we were running four crews, um, four lines full time. Um, through that previous spring and summer, we were basically running at you know sort of 100 to 110 percent capacity, um, which essentially means that we're going over 100 percent. It basically means we're working shift work. Um, now that um, that remained, I suppose. So instead of, you know, dropping back to something much less than 100% capacity uh, through, you know, sort of February, March, April, May, and then, you know, slowing down again in June, July, August, we, we actually stayed quite high. And we actually just maintained spring and summer volumes um, throughout the entirety of 2020, basically. Did, did you see a lot of brewers packaging for the very first time, or was it brewers increasing the amount they packaged yeah so primarily it was absolutely increasing new customers increasing existing customers rather um but you know we we certainly um you know saw more new customers in a short period of time than we ever uh, have or will again um you know it, it wasn't an astronomical number but it was probably a dozen in a month or two um of, of new people that we rocked up to see I'm imagining, and correct me if I'm wrong, but because when we did speak in 2018, it really was a discussion about coping with rapidly scaling business. You, you you recounted a story that you thought, you know, when you bought your first line, maybe you'd be on the road for a week, come back, you know, a, a week to sort of tidy things up and get going, and then you know, out for another week, um, and being very episodic, and it, it was just never that for you. Did that experience of ramping up your business very quickly provide you with tools 
to manage that um, the, the the challenge this time last year? Uh, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah. Look, I think that um, you know having a a staffing group um, to suit a business that um, you know that is at a given level to maintain competitiveness and profitability within the business um, and then having that, you know, increase significantly on you um, is challenging regardless of what tools you've got in the toolbox uh, or experience you have on the shelf. Um, It is a tough thing to do. Um, So, you know, operationally we, you know, did our absolute best but um, certainly exposed a lot of issues through, you know, mainly the depths of winter, the back end of winter and into spring and summer last year. And so, you know, I guess, you know, just to kind of touch on size of, of our operation as well, we, we also in June of last year got a, a, a new machine down from the US, number five, with every, you know, anticipation that that was actually going to replace our oldest one. But by the time it had it arrived on the boat, it was very, very obvious that we needed to run that line. And so we kind of moved into five canning lines in July last year um, and very comfortably, you know, filled up five through spring and summer of last year. You must have ordered that before COVID to have got it by then because I know that there was an absolute shortage of canning lines as people, uh, you know, as, as breweries rushed orders through. Yeah, it was essentially what I was doing uh, up in the States in March. Um, I'm kind of, you know, uh, very, very informally kind of assist Cody in Colorado with, you know, small amounts of kind of ideas around new products and R&D. And so I was kind of uh, doing a little bit of work up there with them at the time as well as kind of getting number five organised and, um, yeah, kind of just came through us through for us at the right time, I suppose. But, um, you know, I guess, you know, back to back to kind of tools for rapidly scaling businesses, there's um, the only thing that really works is living through it and being, you know, um, I guess wise enough to reflect on that to try and figure out what to do next. Um, and we've certainly made some changes through the first portion of this year um, to, you know, try and tighten things up as best we can while also kind of maintaining financial relevance and, and commercial relevance, I guess. This might be a tricky question um, because you're, you're talking about, you know, clients. I'm guessing your client base is big enough that you can answer a general question without identifying anyone in, in particular. But how did the breweries that were canning for the first time in a crisis situation, you know, how, how did you feel they went and how prepared they were um, for, for that sort of, uh, you know, change of business uh, approach? Yeah, we, um, we spoke about this a lot, actually, kind of, um, again, upon reflection after, you know, some of the, the madness, so to speak, had, had sort of calmed down. And, we, we all thought that on the whole, everyone had sort of done remarkably well from aesthetics right through to prep for packaging through to sales. Um, we saw new customers be prepared uh, for what they were doing in, in ways that we'd never seen before, even in the middle of that. Um, I've not reflected too much on why that 
is the case or thought too much about what drove that. But um, yeah, we, we genuinely thought that everyone did really quite brilliantly through that whole period. Okay. Well, that, that, I mean, that, that's good to see because I, I, I know it, it really resonated when you said that the three days felt like three weeks because that's my recollection of the same time. You know, everyone's uncertain, nervous, which drags out the 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 time scale and then everyone's working very very hard at the same time um but you know we did the i think i reached out to you when we were doing the antidote which was a podcast we did for a couple of weeks at that an early at that early stage but that seemed to go forever so it's good to hear that the brewers you know i just remember how frantic and nervous and you know concerned everybody was before they settled into that more regular um well we're in this crisis but it, it we're in it for the long haul yeah, and I think, I mean, I guess, you know, it's like anything, isn't it, where I think sometimes that um, uh, that adrenaline fuels, um, you know, good decision-making and, and, it, and it fuels kind of, you know, has potential at least to fuel strong work practices and, and kind of good results and outcomes for, for certain people, you know, and, and, and I think that that's sort of what it felt like, um, you know, during the middle part of last year, I guess. How has the tail of that been after that initial run of new clients and packaging? Has that demand for your services and presumably for cans in the retail space um, continued? Uh, it's definitely higher than it was, um, for sure. We're going to have a winter this year, um, but things have certainly increased since. Uh, you know, say 2019, right? So, you know, I, I guess it's a really unfair comparison to, to compare uh, May of 2019 with May of 2020 and May of 2021. That's a, it's a tough thing to do, right? It's, you know, those those year-on-year figures um, for any business in any country, in any industry around the world are going to be pretty strange to look at. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and I think for us... Um, you know, I think that we're seeing um, a really fabulous amount of growth from 2019, um, but it's definitely not going to look like winter of 2020. And I think for us, that's actually a pretty good thing. We're ready to have a winter and uh, do a bit of work to get ready for this spring and summer, um, as opposed to just, uh, you know, staying high throughout. I was going to ask, and we've touched on how quickly you've grown and you've got your crews and things. Um you know, when, when we did speak last time, I think you described it as a psychopathic crazy ride in terms of scaling up the the, the, the business and you quickly grew to three and now you have five crews. Um, it, it, it's a new industry in, in the country. There's not a lot of skills out there across the whole brewing industry to match the growth of the industry. How have you gone attracting staff um, and, you know, training them? Have you had to develop your own training resources um, or are there, you know, packages out there that you can plug into? There's certainly no packages to plug into and it's bloody tough. This is, you know, really our core challenge. Um, I think that um, it's sort of important to separate recruitment from training somewhat. Um, recruitment we have an influence over but not control whereas the training we have you know influence and control and um, our national operations manager Jim has done a really awesome job in developing training packages resources systems and processes um, for us to get people through and get them um, on the tools quickly 
that's working really well for us. And so what we've essentially discovered is that we can uh, take somebody with very limited skills and experience and the right attitude and we can turn them into a really valuable asset to our business and give them a really kind of, you know, fun and challenging and exciting job um, if it works for the individual. And, and so that's been really great to see. Now, the recruitment piece is the hard thing. It's just hard to get people um, in general. And, I mean, I've got two jobs out. I've got two, two positions vacant at the moment. And I honestly think I haven't actually looked at the numbers, so I don't want to exaggerate too much. But there is probably uh, a quarter of the applicants for these two jobs that we would normally see. Um, it has dropped really, really, really substantially in the last couple of months. Why is that? I've heard from a lot of bar owners and hospitality people that it's the job seeker supplement uh, makes it less attractive to, to to work in some areas. I mean, it has to be the assumption. Um, I'm not very across the, the broad, you know, situation or the, the economics uh, and the, I guess the, the workplace kind of um, uh, politics of it all. But, yeah, we're, we're seeing it now, I guess. We, we didn't see it uh, sort of six months ago when we were recruiting a little bit, but we're certainly seeing it now. Um, it's, it's pretty tough. Um, but, you know, the, again, um, the nice thing is that we have, you know, kind of good control and good systems over training and retaining staff, and that's really the, the critical piece. Is there an element, and again, correct me if my perception is wrong, but you, you do see a lot of breweries advertising jobs on their packaging lines as a way to get into the brewery and potentially work your way onto onto the brew floor and you know the, the brewing industry is very sexy it's very desirable um, a lot of people are looking to become brewers it, you know it, is there a challenge in getting people into some of these you know support roles for want of a better description um, because they're not seen as being quite as you know glamorous as being the rock star brewer yeah for sure it's and I think that it's easier to get them in but it's harder to keep them there um, and that's the challenge, um, but one that we're willing to live with. And and I think that it's it's one it's a challenge similarly that some of the bigger brewers face, where they might recruit um, an assistant or trainee or or relatively inexperienced brewer, and they have a really hard time kind of keeping those people, you know, keeping the shift brewers. Often those people will transition to something, you know, a, a bit more kind of creative and a bit more sexy as you put it you know um so the 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 desirable jobs are often seen in the creative side um for you know obviously we're we're kind of making some broad sweeping generalizations Mm. about individuals and what they want in their lives but um you know we we certainly see that and and i've you know had discussions with plenty of brewers uh, you know along similar lines and so we see that you know we, we, we see it's you know kind of People do see it as a way to get in and, and, and often kind of pivot back out again. So it's, yeah, that, that's certainly tough. Um, you know, and unfortunately, I, I don't think there's really a, a lot to be done about that. Um, I think that the other thing is that, you know, we do certainly see the case where people will uh, get into that, I don't know, let's, let's call it an entry-level thing, right? 
um, you know, but I'm kind of more referring to a, an industry entry uh, as opposed to anything. And, you know, they'll get into that entry level position and then actually really see what it's about. And we certainly see the inverse um, where the individual might get to get to work with East Coast Canning and, and get going and, and, and spend some time with us and then really get an understanding of what it means to be a brewer, what it means to be in the industry, what it means to be a, a sales rep, for example, or be marketing in the brewing industry or all of the other associated roles. And, and that is, a, I think, a good thing for them. Uh, I think they'll often see uh, where it is and what it is that they actually need in their life and what they need in their, in their, in their work, you know. Because it's yeah again it, it it doesn't have the you know the the glamour you know that just that emotional appeal that being the brewer does but I, I can't think of you know a, a, a role in the beer production process that would be more important um, than packaging because you can have the best beer in the world and stumble in getting it out to market if the beer isn't packaged well. I mean, it's hypercritical, of course, and as you say, and, you know, uh, these machines are difficult to tame and, you know, it's, it's a challenging thing and, and you know, um, we see so many people really, uh, I guess, bond with the, the work of mobile canning in, you know, visiting new places and, you know, an element of travel, like our team spends somewhere between 15 and 20% of their time on the road. Um, and, you know, really getting to, you know, discover new places and new breweries and work with different people all the time. And it's always a different workplace and, and all those sorts of things. Some people identify really strongly with it. Um, but, uh, you know, it's sort of, you know, certainly not for everyone, but it, it is, as you say, you know, uh, hypercritical to, you know, I guess, consumer experience. Uh, and that's something that we um, talk about internally really significantly is that you don't know which can is going to come off one of our canning lines and end up at the um, at the bridal table at someone's wedding, for example. <laughs> um, you know, you don't know which can that's going to be. And so we try and make sure that every every single one of them is treated with the utmost respect, um, because we're ultimately, you know, potentially delivering a really memorable experience for someone um, with that with that beer can. And and I think that that's, you know, I, I think that's what helps us attract and retain staff when we're able to, when it's the right individual. And it's also what helps us attract and retain customers, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, it's. Uh, it's it's certainly a challenge the uh, the, the staffing and the yeah, kind of like the, the workplace um, uh, workplace aspects I guess of what we do. One of the things that really stood out when I listened back to to, to our chat was you said um, something along the lines of there was a lack of willingness in the industry to accept that it is a manufacturing industry, and I, I think that touches a little bit on the glamour and the excitement of the industry. But at the end of the day, making beer is manufacturing. And you talked about all of the challenges that manufacturers have. Have you seen that there's been a bit of a change of mindset around that? Or are still people coming into the industry ignoring the fact that it is a manufacturing business? Uh, I think, um, I think unfortunately, I don't think I've really seen anything change. You know, um, 
we still have a very, very, I, I guess we, we still see a lot of um, resistance to the concept of a machine breaking down. And, you know, machines do break um, and we are able to fix our machines and get them running, you know, quicker than uh, I think anybody else is going to be able to, you know, even internationally. But at the end of the day, you know, things happen in manufacturing like machine breakdowns or logistics issues and trucks don't show up on time or, you know, maybe a supplier has a machine breakdown. And, and I guess what we are generally talking about with the resistance to see it as manufacturing is, is that there's a sort of a resistance to see that um, so much of the process uh, within a brewer's packaging business is outside of their control. Now, that also extends to, you know, raw, raw materials and ingredients and, you know, the truck full of, you know, the three tonnes of malt you ordered not showing up on the right day and all those sorts of things. Um, unfortunately, I think that we we just see uh, more and more uh, that, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, people are under so much pressure to make their businesses run cost effectively and well and on time. And I think that it's it's easy to forget that there's all of those things outside of your control. Um, I had um, I had two of my staff uh, driving uh, around to regional parts of New South Wales last night, picking up labels because a machine broke down, and we have to get them to a customer today. And you know, we try and do everything we can behind the scenes to remove the uh, little kind of aids and the little ebbs and flows that are created, uh, you know, kind of upstream of us um, so that they're not felt downstream. But, you know, I think that generally speaking, we still have what I described, you know, back in 2018, where it's sort of like, you know, not everything's going to go your way and not everything's going to go to plan. And the best thing to do in, in my eyes is actually really accept that and, um, you know, kind of, learn how to you know how to learn how to manipulate those situations to your advantage and learn how to kind of work with those um but um yeah look i think that's such a you know um it's such a, a big part of what you know my kind of operations guys you know deal with uh every day but at the same time it's um you know we don't see it we always see it for what it is, which is, you know, um, the the challenges and stresses of being a small to medium business in Australia. Um, and, you know, that's kind of what I make sure that I'm always kind of coaching our team on um, is to, you know, not see it as anything but that, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly felt though, you know. Mm. Following on from that, the other thing that you mentioned, um, you know, we talked a lot about, the cold logistics, um, you know, the, the the challenges that small brewers had, and you recounted a story of a truckie who had you know a huge volume of pasteurised mainstream beer on that was going to be sitting on the back of his truck for three or four days as he delivered it up the coast, and you were laughing at the thought of craft beer sitting in the same way, um, and with smaller deliveries required and cold chain logistics just all of the inefficiencies and cost built into an already expensive product. Have you got any, you know, revised view of, of, of those challenges? Um, I remember that truck driver so well. Gosh. <laughs> it was a great story. Oh, mate. He was a, very, he was a character. But, yeah, that, 
that that semi sat in our yard full of kegs so many weekends in summer it was insane but um look i think that um what i believe since 2018 is that the um the desire and capability um to be a national brand and sell pallets and slabs of three different SKUs has decreased. Decreased. Yeah, I, I think that there's certainly, you know, still your 50 businesses or something that are really pursuing that business model and they're really going after that. Uh, and we service those people in, you know, 2016, 17 and 18, but we're not really working so much with those um, businesses anymore. Um, it, you know, it, it doesn't really make sense. They're often, you know, contract brewed or, you know, maybe they've, you know, invested significantly in machinery, you know, people, you know, not that we, you know, have, have worked with them um, at all, but people like, you know, Black Ops with their recent, you know, pack expansion. You know, those people who are really chasing national accounts um, and, and good geographic expansion, um, I think has... Uh, seems to have uh, changed somewhat, seems to have, you know, uh, I guess, slowed down. We, we're finding more and more that um, customers who may have had, you know, desires to kind of, you know, perhaps be through through the majors within their state or something like that, um, those desires, you know, have, have often decreased into something that, you know, represents more like, you know, 10 or 20 stores in their geographical region. Um, you know, and, and I think that for that reason, the kind of, you know, sending beer around, you know, sending craft beer around the country nationally, you know, that, that looks and feels like, um, you know, 100 slabs uh, of a certain skew on, on each pallet and, you know, there's nine pallets on a truck. We just don't see that as much anymore um, in, in our business and in, in our customer base. Um, so there's kind of like new challenges, right? With like, <laughs> I won't name names, but one guy called it, one guy sort of mentioned to me last year that he was dubbing it a skewmageddon, um, <laughs> with, the, with the, 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 you know, enormous kind of explosion in, in different skews. And I think that creates new challenges, right? New inefficiencies. Um, but, um, yeah, I think that, you know, the, the inefficiencies and the costs for an already expensive product uh, haven't gone away and I guess probably won't. Um, you know, packaged beer particularly is uh, sort of just about, you know, the, the lowest margin, um, you know, product line that most of our customers would have. Um, and, you know, that's not going away anytime soon. Um so it's, yeah, it's sort of an interesting one. It's sort of not really changed in sort of a, a broad principle, but I, I guess, you know, um, most likely, and I don't really have much knowledge around it, most likely the, the, um, the challenges have probably shifted and changed, you know, with, with us kind of being more around, um, a, a, you know, greater number of special releases, um, you know, as opposed to a core range, for example. You've actually anticipated two of my questions there. I'm, I'm going to go back to skewmageddon because I hadn't heard that phrase um, and uh, I, I love it because when we were talking about COVID and the rush of breweries to can for the first time, you know, this week I was in my local bottle shop, which is just a banner group. It, do, it doesn't 
have a pretense to be a you know particularly craft specific bottle shop but at the same time it's got probably four fridge facings of local craft um, and that is a huge change for this particular bottle shop and you know a, a lot of them are local um, there are one or two from in, from interstate and some of the bigger names that are from interstate but there just seems to be such a crush um, of you know beer in in package and I do wonder how much it's all turning over um, did you know? Do you have any observations that you can bring to that discussion? Yeah, I've got a couple. First of all, how often it's turning over? I reckon it's turning over at the same rate that it always has. Okay. I only say that through you know kind of direct evidence that we have and what we see uh, in um, you know just essentially in booking uh, frequency. And I can't think of a single customer off the top of my head that's really elongated their uh, packaging cycle, for example. Um, I think that, you know, uh, a lot of the customers that we work with are still packaging, you know, um, about the same frequency and they're adding volume. And so I think that, you know, um, there's probably bits I'm missing in that, um, you know, like how, you know, what I guess the, the market growth on consumer end is, for example, you know, might affect the turnover or something like that. But I think I can be pretty certain to say that, you know, the customers that we work with are sending beer to market at the same frequency they always have, if not maybe, uh, you know, slightly, you know, something like 20 or 30% faster or, or more often. Um, so I think that, you know, that's probably uh, a nice thing and a nice to know. Um, I think around Schemageddon, I think this is where I'm kind of pretty interested in, and I have done a little bit of work recently reviewing some data from, you know, sort of about the last 12 months. Um, it sort of, well, actually, I've sort of looked at almost two years and, and I've been looking specifically at sort of, um, you know, individual uh, customer stories and seeing really quite clearly the same customer throughout 2019 in terms of the amount of beer that they're packaging with us um, and the number of SKUs they're doing sitting really very similarly and quite the same. And I've got, you know, this really kind of strong evidence of what happened to those two customers when, um, one of them decided to completely scrap their core range and just sell specialty. And the amount of volume uh, of cans that they did increased literally by 10, um, while the, the, the other brewery remained on that four to five core range kind of skew pathway um, and ha have been there still since. Um, I think that skew again, and while it's costly, when it's done well, some of these people are getting real success out of it and doing really well. That answers a question that I've had about watching the market because you do see this explosion of just constant new releases. And we get a media release for all of them. My inbox is um, just bursting with uh, you know new beers and uh, announcements. So... I, you know, I, I presume that they can see a benefit in doing it, but is it a short-term um, cycle or do you think that this, you know, is 
breweries that are doing that and building a brand for that have that casting out into their future, that, that same sort of business model? Or is consumer taste and demand going to change just through palate exhaustion? Look, maybe, but I think what we see and have seen in the US is that palate, palate exhaustion brings us <laughs> palate exhaustion brings lagers, um, <laughs> and and I, and I think that would you know I think that uh, I guess that once a business obtains a revenue stream, it's very difficult to let that go. Mm. And I think that that what we'll see is that we'll see a lot of these people who've been successful with skewing again. I think we'll see them. Um, I think we'll see the vast majority of them be successful in uh, maintaining relevance uh, to beer drinkers and maintaining relevance in new releases. It doesn't mean that every release has to be crazy, um, but it needs to be. It does mean that every release needs to be well thought out, well produced, well packaged, um, well designed, well marketed, and all of those things. Um, there's actually an, an awful lot to it in, in creating those SKUs than what it is that that, um, that our business does, for example. Um, there's, you know, we're a very small part of Skewmig um, in the big picture. But I think that, you know, again, I think it will more or less hang around um, because the other part of Skewmig is that um, I'm sort of also talking about something that, we, that I, I covered a, a little bit earlier, which is, around the, you know, um, the identification from brewers on what their geographical area looks like and what their customer base looks like. And I think that Skewmageddon is often driven into local core bottle shops and an awful lot of retail and e-com. And I think that that is such a good thing. Um, I think that what that is doing is is taking, you know, one of their low margin product lines and, and flipping it high margin. Um, or, or higher at least, you know. Um, so I think that there's, I guess there's a lot of levers to pull uh, in terms of being successful with lots of lots of new releases. Um, and I think that uh, maybe not everyone has thought about it, um, you know, with the depth that it deserves. But I think that the people who are getting it right are really getting it right and they're really kind of getting a win. Okay. That's one of the that that leads quite nicely into uh, another question that I wanted to ask you because when we last spoke, you know, beer was a little bit more traditional. It was, you know, pale ales, IPAs, um, and I think we just we touched a little bit on sours because they were in a bit of a, a growth phase at that stage, and, and that was just the old, um, you know, much more traditional sour. Um, you know, in the last three years, we've seen the. The, the growth of, you know, the really hazy, um, you know, juicy style IPA. Um, we've seen fruit, we've seen pastry. All of these things are, you know, new essentially since we last spoke and are massive and they're also feeding into that, you know, constant um, release. Um, <laughs> and I'm mindful that when we were talking about your business uh, in 2018, we used the word exploding a lot. Um, the, the, these days when you bring in some of those beer styles and exploding, you're talking about a whole different thing. You know, is that rapid development cycle and highly, you know, boundary-pushing beers creating challenges for you in the in, in the packaging space? 
Yeah, it is. Um, it is for sure. Um, I think um, quite. <laughs> I think the funny thing is that we um, we used to joke about us really needing to be called East Coast IPA Canning in 2018, <laughs> um, and I think we kind of you know we're really kind of East East Coast hazy canning now maybe, but um, the the challenges uh, are definitely increased somewhat. You know, I've taken in the last three years we've taken. Um, a canning line offline completely for an entire day, uh, strictly on both occasions at cacao nibs. Um, so those things are shocking. Um, <laughs> but the the challenges are there. We definitely ask an awful lot more questions than we used to about um, the makeup of of a product. Can, can I just ask that when you have to do that, is it like when you throw up in a taxi, you have to pay a cleaning fee? No, we're pretty, we're pretty, we're pretty nice. We're pretty nice about it. Um, but um, I think that um, yeah, it's uh, you know pu- pulling apart fill heads and gaskets and clearing out cacao nibs is yeah, it's tough. But um, yeah, it's not not quite the not quite the taxi model. But um, yeah, so uh, you know yeah, we well, look, we're asking more questions and we're certainly um uh seeing the occasional tank of beer dumped you know where we kind of show up someone's pushed the boundaries and not quite gotten it right uh that happens uh from time to time but i don't think that we've seen any um really material change um it's just kind of a noticeable one if you know what i mean it's nothing nothing too out there or too crazy um where I guess, you know, speaking really briefly uh, outside of beer, we're seeing challenges exist in that space, really, um, with more and more people wanting to, to package kind of, you know, non-beer and non-cider beverages into cans, and that's where um, enormous numbers of questions need to be asked, I guess. How directly do you work with your um, customers, you know, on on the quality and have you ever had to say to somebody, oh, are you sure, really sure you want to package that? Uh, yep, yep. No, we've, um, and I think I was, um, I think I probably neglected to say that, you know, we certainly uh, have said no more often in the last couple of years than we ever have. Um, and uh, it's, there's only a few, there's only a handful of things that can really do that though. You know, it's really for us, uh, a matter of safety of machinery and safety of consumer and, you know, uh, safety of our staff is a thought process but doesn't really come into it when it comes to, you know, boundary pushing beer styles so much. But, you know, the, the other two certainly exist. Um, and so there's, you know, there's there's ways and reasons that we, you know, have to, you know, I guess sort of say enough is enough in certain aspects. Um Often, you know, uh, without diving into a, you know, 30-minute kind of, uh, I guess, you know, synopsis and education piece on that, it's primarily around pressures in the can. So it's things like carbonation or it's things like carbonation in the presence of a liquid nitrogen dose and, you know, things that might potentially make the the, uh, package either uh, and the the final product either, you know, no good for the consumer uh, or unsafe. And, and not a wise move for that that uh, that brand. You mentioned when I asked about palate fatigue, you said you know that's where craft lagers come in. And I'm actually writing. So I was asked a question. Um, somebody wanted me to sort of give my thoughts on on uh, 
some things happening in the industry. And uh, I'm just going to read you something that was my observation because I'd really appreciate your comment on it when it comes to craft lagers. And I've said craft lagers are showing some green shoots. Um, you know, we're starting to see them come about and brewers playing with them. But whether the appeal of independence or craft is enough to make those looking at lagers pay more for the privilege is a question that genuinely worries me in the longer term, especially as the competition in the craft space could see a gradual race to the bottom. And these are already more expensive products. Do you think people will, you know, want, if people do start shifting their choices to lager, that they're willing to pay the substantial premium that small batch craft independent lager demands? I think there's a group of people that we need to say yes to. I think that there is a pretty significant consumer base in our capital cities that are extremely willing to support local and that may well mean a shift from a macro to a independent local craft. Um, for a price penalty. Um, I think that that is absolutely a possibility and and probably somewhat of a likelihood. And I think that that's, you know, I guess that market might be a bit of a slow burn, but it's there. Um, I think that, um, you know, I I live in a, live in, and we work in a regional area. And I think that, um, you know, we're not going to uh, convert many macro lager drinkers, um, you know, in regional areas at this point in time to uh, local stuff. Um, there's a, you know, it's a, it's a different market and a different consumer. Um, I, I think, though, that palate fatigue and lagers, for example, um, you know, while I joke, um, I kind of, also see, you know, there's an awful lot to be done with lagers and, and what I think is absolutely a likelihood and possibility is that we'll see more and more um, variety within lagers and we'll see specially released lagers and we'll see people, you know, kind of really working with the style. And that doesn't necessarily just apply to lagers. What it kind of means is that there will be less kind of, you know, spearmint, cherry, chocolate, imperial, sour, with you know some kind of other characteristic in it um you know they'll you know be the opportunity to create new special release types um out of beers that um and beer styles that people are ready for and want to drink at that time so you know lager is you know maybe just one of those um but you know i think that in terms of you know back to the Back to the 100 slabs of one skew on a pallet model, um, I think that there still is room for um, our industry and our independent craft guys to, you know, get that product to market locally within a, their smaller geographic area. And I think that there's a you know, bit of market to be won there. And I'm very conscious of the time, so I might even just bring it back to canning and ask a fundamental question. Um are, are cans here to stay? Are they a fad? Will we see a shift back to glass? Uh, no, cans are here now. Um, you know, I've, um, you, you may remember I've always been a little bit, um, you know, of the opinion that uh, glass has its place and I still believe that strongly, um, that, you know, it is a decision to be made for a brand, an aesthetic, a product, a skew, um, you know, all those things. 
yeah, glass is is around for a reason, but we're not going to see a dramatic shift from all of these fridge facings, the the four in your local shop. We're not going to see a shift of those back to glass uh, ever. That'll that'll be here to stay in Cairns. Great way to finish. Is there anything else uh, that you want to say? Uh, do you want to give a plug for the, the, the jobs that you're looking to fill? I know that we've got them uh, listed on Bruce News, so anyone that's interested can go find them there. But is there anything else that you uh, bursting to say about the industry in 2021? Uh, look, I don't think there's anything that we haven't covered, Matt. Um, I think it's, you know, a, a, an interesting spot to be in. And, you know, I, I think that um, that's the beauty, isn't it, that, you know, I don't think there's any point in time over the last five years that I haven't um, maybe looked at the whole industry and gone, you know, you know, I, I'm not really ever 100% sure what's around the corner. And I think that's, um, you know, actually something to be, um, you know, thought of fondly and, and actually allowed to kind of, you know, provide inspiration to the industry as opposed to fear. Um, and, I, and I think there's so many people out there kind of, you know, uh, just sort of doing what they do best and and it's kind of a nice spot to be despite the you know kind of uh somewhat of the you know level of uncertainty so chris kelly it's always uh a, a pleasure chatting to you i really enjoy your insights uh you know outside of canning uh, uh, across the whole industry so thank you very much for joining us for this conversation about beer no worries matt thanks again for having me and that was chris kelly Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Crime Malt. With over 25 years in the field, Crime Malt is dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. They are your premium brewing partner, and they are also our premium podcasting partner for this Beer is a Conversation.